1: We've gone from thoughts and prayers to just moving on to other stuff. Welcome to The Texas Take, the number one political podcast in the great state. I'm Scott Braddock, and he's Jeremy Wallace. You can find me at quorumreport.com, and Jeremy's work, of course, is at houstonchronicle.com, in Houston, and uh, in San Antonio at expressnews.com. This is really unbelievable, Jeremy. Last week, we got into the topic of mass shootings once again, and the state's non-response to it, at least uh, from a legislative standpoint, really any sort of standpoint almost. Um, And as we were wrapping up the show, you sent me a text that said something like, it's really unbelievable, we're barely done with the show, and there's been another mass shooting in Texas, this time with kids. And I'm just shaking my head. And and I thought, and I, I tweeted out a version of this, we could not have known that that was going to happen when we started the show last week, but I wouldn't change anything I said about where we are politically and where we are with the legislature. Just doing absolutely nothing about it, and we saw some theater this week with the movement of a gun control bill in the Texas legislature. But that thing—am I wrong? That was just simply, um, you know, putting on a show for the for the people who had come down to the Capitol. But nothing was happening with that thing, right?
2: Yeah, nobody wanted to look like they were killing that bill just a couple of days after, again, seeing more, you know, babies killed. It's like it's it's like it just rips your heart out. And, you know, a hat tip to the Dallas Morning News for running the names of those uh, people who were killed in the ages uh, of each one of them on the front page in bold lettering so everybody could see those names and digest them. You know, it's like that is kind of like, you know. We're almost becoming numb to this because it's happening mm-hmm. so often. But when you see a three-year-old having been shot to death by somebody, it kind of you know wakes you up for a minute. And go, holy cow! This is just not right, you know. So yeah, I I, uh, I, I fear every week now. Where will be the next
1: place? A guy goes on a shooting rampage at the outlet malls in Allen, Texas, in DFW. The state representative for the area is Jeff Leach, and it almost seems to me, Jeremy, that Republican politicians who don't actually want to take any action on any of this stuff, they've moved on from using the phrase thoughts and prayers because that has become really a joke. So so this, this is what Leach says instead. There are many, many people in our community tonight who are hurting, whose lives have been shattered, and who, um, who need and and deserve our, our collective prayers. So it's just a different version of it. Steven Spainauer was one of the first people who rushed to the scene there. Uh he actually got a call uh from his relative who was there as the shooting started to unfold and he spoke with CBS eleven reporter JD Miles in Dallas Fort Worth. Do you think anybody was saved by your actions?
3: I don't know, I lost three people, J D. That there was nothing I could do for. And um that's
1: that's tough. Steven SPAINAUER raced to the Allen Outlet Shopping Center when his son Freddie called just after 3:30 to say there had been shots fired outside the H&M store where he worked. When I heard those shots, and then when the multiple shots happened, my heart just immediately just dropped.
3: Hold up. And I was on the phone with 911, and I was telling them we have a mass casualty incident.
1: Spanauer says he got there before any first responders, and while a handful of people around him recorded videos of the bodies on the ground, he tried to save lives.
3: I never imagined in 100 years I would be thrust into the position of being the first first responder on the site to take care of people.
1: Spanauer says despite applying CPR, at least three of the victims could not be saved.
3: The first girl I walked up to was crouched down, covering her head in the bushes, so I felt for a pulse, pulled her head to the side, and she had no
1: face. It's just horrific. Now, that same gentleman, uh, hour was on CNN talking about the need for gun control.
3: We used to have an assault weapons ban nationally. Uh, We can can do that at the state level. We can put red flag laws in place. We can limit uh, high-capacity rounds like I found. Uh, a live round next to one of the deceased victims, we can stop putting some of these weapons like M4s and AR-15s in the hands of people that don't need them. And I hear our governor talking about mental health issues. We're always going to have mental health issues, but if we don't do something about the guns, the people killing guns, then we're going to continue to have the same thing happen. And it could happen to your family. It could happen to anybody that's watching in any state, in any small town or big city. And until we take some definite actions, we're changing the narrative about, men- about it being just a mental health issue and start doing something about the guns.
1: He mentioned Governor Abbott there. Abbott was on Fox News, and he also avoided the specific phrase, thoughts. And prayers.
2: And I'll be going up to Allen uh,
4: later today to uh, begin the process of uh, providing hope and,
2: and healing. But I got to tell you that there are questions that are lingering that the families want answers to. And that is, why did this happen? Why did the government do
4: this? Uh, how did this happen? Uh, and I know that those families uh, need an answer as
2: quickly as possible.
1: The congressman for the area, Keith Self, who's also a Republican, and the former county judge in uh, Collin County, Jeremy, he was asked about the criticism of the phrase, thoughts and prayers. You know, you always have these people saying that what we offer is our thoughts and prayers, and a lot of folks say that just doesn't cut it. What did the congressman have to say about that?
0: Well, those are people that don't believe in uh, an almighty God who, who has who is absolutely in control of our lives. I'm a Christian I believe that he is we have people though with mental health that we're not taking care of since this nation made the decision that we were going to close the mental health institutions uh, many of these situations are based on that Uh, and the people that say and and I really I would like to stay away from the politics today because I want to focus on the victims Uh, today we should be focused on the families
1: Houston Democrat Gene Wu said that if you're ignoring the families of the folks in Allen or ignoring the families of the folks from Uvalde, then to answer what the congressman just said, you are ignoring God himself.
2: The people who are responsible send their thoughts and prayers to God, and God has sent them, and no one is listening To the people that God sent. You have prayed for an answer. You have begged for a solution. The solution is standing right here. Your answer is looking you in the face. I cry because every time I see that fucking video, to see those pictures, I see my son There is no safe place in America anymore. Yeah,
1: you know, Jeremy, he said that you could be talking about a school, you could be talking about an outlet mall, you could be talking about say, any public place. Just about that people are bringing these weapons of war to wage war on communities, and it's always specific communities. We saw, uh, and it's just a, a, a you know a tragedy on top of a tragedy. To point this out, the El Paso shooter lived in Allen. You remember that? He lived in Allen, Texas, drove however long it takes to get from Allen to El Paso, probably 13 hours to get out there and go hunt brown people, right? This guy in Allen, this time around, apparently had ties to right-wing and neo-Nazi groups. He at least looked a lot, you know, he looked at a lot of the stuff uh, associated with that online, and he was wearing a badge with uh, the letters RWDS which stands for right-wing death squad. So you didn't have to guess about his personal politics here. Um, It's always the same people who are being targeted. And as you said, you have very young children, a three-year-old as one of the victims in this. And you're just at a loss for words about what to say. But we know that the politics of the state are such that until the general election matters, nothing is going to happen at the Texas Capitol when it comes to quote-unquote, gun control. And to take that a step further, you know, the governor went to Allen and they had a vigil and a memorial for these folks. But by Monday, he was doing something completely different. What was he doing by then, Jeremy? By
2: then he was at uh, the airport in Austin talking about clearly one of the issues he likes to talk about the most, which is the border. so uh, right. He ended up coming to Austin, holding a press conference, you know, well before 7 a.m. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, you know, to show how much military force that he was sending to the border uh, in preparation for Title 42 expiring. But uh, what was interesting in, in his press conference with us, he didn't bring up Alan, Mm-mm. you know, uh, when it first started. There were questions later uh, that he he was asked about. But for, for his presentation, he just kind of, you know, we didn't even hear about it.
1: If you hadn't asked, it would be like it didn't happen. By Monday, the governor of Texas um, on the runway, and he had he had y'all there on the runway. Why?
2: Yeah, th- this was kind of interesting. So they, they had uh, uh, Texas State Guard troops positioned off to the side, just standing mm. there waiting for something. You know, they had these C one hundred and thirty planes ready to load up, but those soldiers were off to the side. Uh, you know for some reason not getting into those planes and I'm like, what is going on here but when the press conference started where Abbott could start saying how he thought Biden was wrong on everything he's doing with the border, that's mm-hmm. when those soldiers were asked to march behind him to those planes so you had this backdrop of a couple hundred, Uh, Texas State Guard members going past the governor as he was talking about the military response and how the troops he was sending to the border would be Mm -hmm. better than the troops that Biden is sending to the border and how (laughs) it's a different thing altogether.
1: All right. Now you might, if you're wearing headphones and listening to this, you might turn them down a little bit because this is almost obnoxious. You can hear those C-130s in the background or almost in the foreground. They're almost drowning out Abbott and everything that he can, that he's saying is, uh, uh, it's just a a buzz from these planes as he's talking, Jeremy, could you even hear what he was saying while you were standing there? That's what was so insane
2: they started those 130s up and so we couldn't hear anything he was saying. You could not hand, hear what he was saying unless you were plugged into his specific microphone with the mm-hmm. TV stations. So the rest of us were just you'll, you'll you'll see pictures from that event where you can see me craning my head closer and closer to the governor <laughs> trying to hear what the heck is he talking about because the planes were drowning us out and we could barely hear anything.
1: Yeah, let's let's all try to listen to this together now because it is very difficult to hear.
2: Today- Today we are deploying
3: a new National Guard unit. It's called the Texas Tactical Border Force. Right now, as we're speaking, the Texas National Guard is loading Black Hawk helicopters and C-130s, deploying specially trained National Guard members for the Texas
2: Tactical Border Force.
1: If you had told me ahead of time that what the governor was going to do is go to the Austin airport and have troops there on the runway ready to run onto airplanes when he gives the order to send them down to the border, I would have thought, that's a joke. You have to be kidding. Uh, But no, this is what was happening. And why was he specifically at that spot? Well, it seemed like he had something else he had to do right as the press conference was concluding. This
2: is Governor Greg Abbott joins us now.
1: Oh, he was on Fox News Channel. Is that where Fox wanted him to be?
2: Yeah, what was crazy was that he cut off the press conference. You know, they took a few questions and they cut it off uh, and said the press conference was over. And then the governor moved over to, you know, a couple hundred feet uh, after watching another plane take off. Uh, he started doing a live interview with Brian Kilmeade on Fox and Friends, which just happened to be timed at the, you know, coincidentally the same exact time he oh. was having a press conference with C 130s loading in the background.
1: This is all very serious. Um, when it comes to the border, it seems like there has to be some separation here of uh, the the fact and fiction, right? I mean, the, the uh, fact that folks are being so worked up about this at a time when bodies are piling up because of mass shootings in Texas, and then what you see online – from certain folks, and not just politicians, but some conservative thought leaders and others, are these pictures of hordes of illegal immigrants coming across the border, in some cases showing old photos from when there had been big migration movements down along the Texas-Mexico border. For example, when a bunch of immigrants were trying to make their way in who had originated in Haiti, and then a bunch of those people were put on a plane by the Biden administration and sent right back. You remember that. So we saw yeah. all of these pictures of folks who were under one of the international bridges. Um, but the reporting from the uh, time frame around the ending of Title 42, which I will remind everybody now, is a COVID restriction, which Abbott and Ron DeSantis and all the rest have railed against every other COVID restriction, except this one. This is the one that that's good because it's supposed to keep migrants out of the United States. Um, all of the reporting, Jeremy, was that the crossings at the border were down a little bit as as the as Title forty two started to expire. Um, we do know, uh, you know, in covering this for many years, that uh, when it comes to uh, the crossings, that it has, uh, in you know most of the time, it has more to do with what time of year it is what the weather is like as far as, you know, when people move from one place to another. Also, there are different push factors out of these different countries where these migrants are originating from. You may have a uh, war breakout, uh, you know, you may have uh, instance of extreme poverty, uh, you know, downturn in the economy that, that, you know, shifts people to different places. But it's generally not because some specific policy in the United States went one way or another.
2: Yeah, and, and it, this is such a critical issue, you know, for Texans to kind of like, you know, to have people who understand what's happening, right? You need people who know the difference between Brownsville and Laredo and El Paso and Del Rio. It's like, and I'm kind of, you know, like, you just see these images that are connected to nothing. You know, they just say, oh, the the border. You know, and just like, and you don't know what they're talking about. So, so here the thing is, it's like it's a much more complex issue going on huh. right now. Look, so so w- what we know, so like you know, our organization, Hearst Newspapers, we had people all over the Texas border. We had people in El Paso who absolutely there were lines on the other side of the border of people trying to come in and were trying to get through uh, mm-hmm. before Title Forty Two completely went away uh, mm-hmm. because of the new policy. That the Biden administration is putting into place that may make it even harder for them to just set foot. You cannot just show up at the border and ask for asylum anymore. You're going to have to go through you know, the Mexican government or another country on the way in. So that was a different situation there. In Laredo, nothing was happening. Crickets chirping. You know right. they saw no impact whatsoever. Go to Brownsville? Yes, there were people coming across the river. Jerry Lara, uh, the photographer the San Antonio Express News, has some amazing photos of the Texas National Guard turning people away and pushing them back across the river, including little children. You know, you'll see like a baby with a pacifier you know, going back across the the river, trying to get Mm -hmm. back So, so there's a lot of things happening on the border. So it's like, you know, it's like, I I hate to put pressure on people when you're seeing news bits, man, you got to bring in the whole picture. It's like the the whole picture is a much different thing than just say, Oh, look, here's this one outpost, you know, from maybe somewhere in Arizona, the border's a mess, you know, Now everybody respond with anger Mm -hmm. and frustration. It's like no, there's clearly problems there, and there's a lot of different disagreements out there. You know, one of the pieces I was writing about uh, uh, this week, and I wrote a lot of border stories this week, but one of them was about Julian Castro, the former San Antonio mayor, just really being upset with how the Biden administration prepared for Title 42 going away Mm -hmm. and the programs they put in place, you know, to replace it. You know, his point was, look, we've gone. You know, two years knowing this is going to happen and they don't seem fully prepared for what was happening. And the Mm -hmm. policy they're putting in place is kind of what Biden at one point complained to Trump during one of the debates about, you know, Trump was not letting people come to the United States to declare, you know, for asylum, uh, something Biden made it sound like he would not do. And yet here he is, this new policy is kind of making that same thing happen.
1: The border is absolutely the easiest thing to scare people about because of this. Most people don't know anything about it and don't live anywhere near it. it, it it's, it's interesting that the further you – I mean physically, the further you get away from the border, the easier it is to scare people about it. Yes. It seems <laughs> like people point. in DFW – it seems like people in DFW are way more worked up about it. Some, Not everybody in DFW, obviously, but some folks in, in Dallas-Fort Worth would be way more worked up about it than people who actually live in Brownsville or Laredo or El Paso, where they see what actually goes on. And because people don't know anything about it, Jeremy, folks get away with saying anything about it. In fact, people can get away with saying the exact opposite. They can contradict themselves about this. Here's a good example that you noticed. What was it that former President Trump said during his CNN town hall about the border wall?
2: Yeah, he ended up saying he completed it somehow.
1: Right? Yeah, l- l- yeah, listen to this. I did
3: finish the wall. I built a wall. I built hundreds of miles of wall, and I finished it. And then I said, we have to build some more.
1: Now, I could just stop there because he contradicted himself even within that five seconds, right? He said he finished the whole thing, but then he said we need to build some more. If you had finished the whole thing, where else would you build wall? Out into the Pacific Ocean or out into the Gulf of Mexico? Uh, That's not the border, right? doesn't count. Um, But didn't he say... At some point, that he had not finished the wall?
2: Yeah, the reason I knew immediately when he said that, the reason I knew he wasn't telling the full truth is because I took a picture of him in front of the incomplete wall where he talked about the incomplete wall a year after he was out of office.
1: Right, uh, listen to that. These
2: problems,
3: this wall would have been completed. Within two months, everything could have been completed. It would have been painted, not sitting there rotting and rusting. It would have been
2: perfecto.
1: It would have been perfecto. So he said in uh, the CNN town hall that he did finish the wall, but that he also said that he needed to do more of it. And then you hear him right there say, and again, what was this was about a year after he was out of office and he's blaming Biden for the fact that the wall was not finished. He had said it would have been finished if they would have kept Trump as president it seems to me that the rhetoric around this from former president trump and his supporters jeremy is just that everything was great when trump was there right and everything's bad now that biden is there even though we know that it's a it's a mix right there were good things and bad things under trump good things and bad things under biden
2: yeah. And you, I think you nailed it when you said like, so people away from the border, they don't care about the details of it. Right. No. You know, it's like, even like, no. I just, I remember like, you know, you go back to, what was it? 2018 or 2019 where, where I remember uh, Dan Patrick, the Lieutenant governor even saying, it's like, look, nobody wants a wall along the full border. We're talking about really, if you just build a wall, mostly from, you know, the Valley up to Laredo is kind of where you're you're trying to aim for, but Trump never said that, you know, it's like, and so if you go to the Texas. Border, you know, I, I've been along most of that twelve hundred miles, and mm-hmm. I can tell you, there's no wall in almost all of it. You know, it's like so. W- w- when <laughs> when Trump <laughs> says he's built a wall, it's like go to Laredo, folks. Like anybody, you know, everybody in Laredo is probably thinking, what? It's like there's no wall here. It's like there's nothing. What are we talking about here? Same thing. Like if you, you go up to like there are parts of El Paso that do have fencing and wall, but mm-hmm. lots of parts that don't. You know, same thing with the valley. You know, the same thing in Del Rio and you will pass. It's like it's just it's just one of those things that is like, I don't understand how like there are things that are absolutely you can make your point if you're if you're the former president. You can make your point and still say, look, the, the border's a mess. You can try to make the claim that it was better under you, you know, there's like some data to support you. But why would you say the border uh, the border wall is finished? It's clearly not finished.
1: Right, because that's the that's the simplistic way for people to think about it. It was, it was going to be that they were going to build a wall, and it has been a long time, Jeremy, uh, since this claim was made, that Mexico was going to pay for it. Oh, yeah. But remember that?
2: I mean, remember yep. that?
1: We're, we're all on the hook here. I mean, at one point, Mexico was going to pay for it. And then, no, that when that wasn't going to happen, then the federal government was going to pay for it. And now we're in the position where Governor Abbott has – committed to the state of Texas paying for at least some of it, right? It was the the cost got shifted, dear listener, to you, right? This all started out as Mexico will do it. Now it's, you're going to do it. And you have to, you have to, you have to wonder how did that happen? (laughs) What, what in the world? So while that's happening, all of that, you know, with the C-130s going to the border and everything, the Texas house leadership wants to do something a little bit different from what Abbott's doing on the border and there were some activists at the Texas Capitol this week to protest against this proposed civilian border police force. The Democrats were able to beat this back at least partially, Uh, Jeremy. I was on the floor for this late night uh, earlier this week uh, where this bill was on the floor from Representative Matt Schaefer, a very conservative member of the legislature from Tyler, Texas, Smith County. His proposal has to do with allowing for civilians to sign up to be part of this new sort of border police force, border patrol unit, border protection unit, whatever you call it. It's something that if you ran the original language of the legislation through GPT, the chat GPT thing, it would tell you that the kind of people who would sign up for this are the guys who have the profile of the shooter in Allen right somebody who would have neo-Nazi ties and would wear a right-wing death squad badge that's a, that sounds like a great thing for border relations with Texas and Mexico so representative Rafael Enchia was questioning the author of the bill representative Schaefer about how this would work and it got a little testy how would one of these uh, volunteers um,
4: deter someone attempting to cross the border unlawfully? Well, they're not volunteers; they are employees. They are non-commissioned officers. How would they deter somebody from coming across and the border I'm answering your unlawfully. question, Mr. They are not volunteers; they are <clears throat> non-commissioned officers under the authority of the governor, the authority of the Department of Public Safety. I, I, I didn't ask about I'll authority. What, what I wanted to get to is how would they? deter someone attempting to cross the border unlawfully.
1: What he wants to know is how would it work, not where would the authority come from. That was pretty clear uh, as far as the legislation is written, that this would be something that would be under the office of the governor instead of under the Department of Public Safety. They're kind of moving some things around with this proposal. Um, Anchia said, look, let's get down to brass tacks. How could these guys enforce the border and what kind of tools would they use? What would they uh, be either... Um, you know, smacking immigrants around with? What would they be shooting them with? What would this really look like? How would it play out? Does it include tear gas?
4: Representative Von I'm answering your question. Okay. Just a few days ago, in El Paso, rocks were being thrown at the Border Patrol. And <clears throat> the way that they protected themselves was to use tear gas. Would the BPU be able to use tear gas? I think if the facts warranted that, they could. Okay. Uh, Would they be able to use beanbag projectiles? Would the BPU be able to use beanbag projectiles? I I don't know. Would they be able to use horses or ropes? I think it's going to depend on the facts on the ground. I I think that we're going to make sure that uh, Texans are protected and that the officers are able to protect themselves. And in the specific case that I just mentioned, So same answer uh, on the rocks the beam, were being thrown at the officers. And so the and officers used, and ropes. Same used a crowd control measure to protect themselves. Okay.
1: Jeremy, this uh, measure uh, in its full form was defeated by Democrats on the floor of the Texas House. They uh, were able to successfully argue uh, a uh, procedural Uh, question, uh, what's called a point of order that took the bill down, Um, there was a sort of watered down version of the same thing that was placed into another border protection piece of legislation late night after, I think it was one o'clock in the morning when that was done. I noticed that that was done by the Texas House after staff for Governor Abbott had been on the floor of the House, but then they left. And then this watered down version of the same proposal was put into another bill. One thing I read from that is that Governor Abbott is aligned, at least on this proposal, with the Mexican American Legislative Caucus. Well, they hate this proposal too. They they have called it, you know, a right wing death squad, uh, you know, vigilante death squad. And Abbott doesn't have that objection, but I think Abbott likes the thing that he was showcasing at the airport where you were, which is the program he already has going, which is Operation Lone Star and beefing all of that up.
2: Yeah, the last thing he's going to want is to have, you know, people who aren't DPS or state troopers kind of in the mix uh of this too, you're right. And you know, it's like talking about jurisdictional problem. It's like you get your state, you know, guard there, you got your federal border patrol, you got your DPS agents, you have your county law enforcement, and now we're injecting who else in this? It's like it's like how are we like, you know, gonna manage all that? There's clearly not a lot of coordination already as it is. It's like I asked the governor specifically if he was coordinating with, you know, the White House to make sure that maybe there were, you know, maybe we're maximizing you know, the use of all the you know, people down there and the positions down there. And he clearly... You know, uh, did not answer that in a way that said yes. <laughs> he gave me a long answer, but it wasn't mm-hmm. yes. And we heard up in you know in D.C., you know, Secretary Mayorkas of uh, the Homeland Security uh, uh, Department. He mm-hmm. said something similar, where you know you know it works best when we're working together and coordinated. But he left mm-hmm. the impression that it's not all being coordinated right now. Imagine if everybody could just kind of you know put the politics aside for a second. And just kind of maybe make sure, like, if, if the goal is to, you know, keep people from crossing the border, let's let's kind of get together and just, like, you know, elections are well, well off. Like, nobody mm-hmm. will remember this a year from now. <laughs> just, like, make sure you're not, like, duplicating things and, you know, putting people in the way. And certainly, lastly, we don't put a bunch of volunteers uh, who just signed up because, you know, they want to repel, you know, people who don't look like them.
1: Yeah, because it sounds good to go down to the border with your gun and hang out on the river and turn these people back. You know, when I was working in uh, Houston years ago, there were already, and you remember, that there may still be some of this. I think it's died down a little bit uh, and and probably in part has died down some because of all the state government action along the uh, Rio Grande. Um, But in 2005, 2006, 2007, I remember covering these groups called U.S. Border Watch, and they were uh, in, in Arizona, they called them the Minutemen, were these, yep. these civilians who would just go down completely undeputized by anybody than, other than themselves, to just go down there with their guns on the river and look for immigrants. And I had seen these incidents where they would confront undocumented people coming out of the river, and the undocumented people would throw their inner tubes at those folks. They're lucky they didn't get shot. I think there were some instances where there was some violence between those civilian groups and and people on the uh, you know people on the other side who are trying to come in, uh, but I can only imagine how much worse it would get if you had the uh, government of the state of Texas telling those same people, oh hey, here's a license to go do this, like a hunting license, like a hunt. Think of that. Think think of that program that Schaefer's talking about as a hunting license for brown people.
2: Yeah, and you can see that, that that probably makes more sense to a person in Tyler, Texas, or someplace far north of the border, where you're not dealing with the day to day life of what it's really like down there. When you get into these areas, I know, I know I, I'm not simplifying this too much. I hope, but you know, ninety percent of the people you meet in Brownsville are Hispanic. You know, same thing in Laredo. You know, and, and guess what? Spanish is everywhere. You know, it's like, and so, like, imagine you just have some guy from Tyler who, like, is just mad about the border coming down there, and now we're letting him decide, you know, who is, like, a Mexican citizen and who is not, and who is, you know, a U.S. citizen. And, and (laughs) again, let's remember that there are people who have been here when Mexico still owned the land. Their families have ties to before mm-hmm. it was you know, in fact Texas, you know, as a as a nation and then later as a state. As yeah. like it was like so and I think understanding on the ground is not as simple as just picking out the person you think is illegal. Like that is like nothing but trouble. It's like they, like how in the world? I don't know how you would even try to do that.
1: How would you even try to do that? I mean, to underscore the point, not only is it that 90% or or however many, whatever the percentage is, 90% or more in a lot of places are Hispanic, but also people who have lived in the United States their entire life and visit Mexico frequently, but people who were born here are American citizens. There's a lot who don't speak almost any English in the border region. Right, because their families have always spoken Spanish, and you have a lot of uh, the younger generations in those families that that speak both, that speak both fluently, right? Um, but that, I mean, for example, um, a person I know, their mother, who is a is a citizen, doesn't speak any English, and so her daughter, who is also an American citizen, has to translate for her mother everywhere, right? But that, but the whole family. They're all Americans, right? So how, so if you're one of the border patrol, civilian patrol, vigilante squad guys, how do you even start to figure out, you know, just based on your training, <laughs> who's undocumented and who's not show me your driver's license? Well, what if they don't have a driver's license?
2: And, and people are coming back and forth across these and board, the border all the time. I, you know, again, people who don't live around there. You know, I, I I I've never lived on the border. I've just been there a lot. As like, but when you're there a lot, you understand. Like, oh, people go back and forth from Brownsville uh, to Matamoros all day long. You know, the same thing in Laredo. You know, Nuevo Laredo and Laredo. It's like, people are going back and forth. You see it out with Juarez in El Paso. It's like there's a there's a relationship where like there are like just thousands of people going back and forth all the time. You don't know who's legal or who's not if you're just eyeballing the situation. You know, it's like, I, you know, again, not to pick on, you know, somebody from Tyler, but it's like I don't want them trying to discern like all of that sitting in El Paso trying to figure out like what – we have a federal border patrol trained to do just let them do their job get out of their way. You're not helping the matter if you're sitting here you know walking around with your you know uh, you know a, a, you know ak47 or whatever mm-hmm. to kind of show some force it's like how does that gonna help the situation? I don't get it
1: yeah, I'll tell you this to put a really fine point on it instead of uh, comparing the uh, folks on the border to people in Tyler you could say, what about the people on the border versus people in Allen? You think about the guy who drove all the way to El Paso, who I mentioned to go there to try to do what, to do what governor Abbott and others have talked about, which is repelling a quote invasion. And when that guy from Allen got to the Walmart in El Paso, his bullets didn't know the difference between citizens and non-citizens as he's trying to shoot people there and take out the illegal immigrant invasion. So taking that indiscriminate violence and putting it into statute would be really unbelievable. It's a good thing that it doesn't seem like that proposal is really going anywhere. I don't think that Lieutenant Governor Patrick or Governor Abbott have any interest in it whatsoever. I think Abbott wants to continue to do what he's doing on the border. Um, This week, and following up on something that was breaking news during our last program, this week... The Texas House did something it hasn't done in almost a hundred years, which is expel one of its members. It was a unanimous vote. I think it was um, one forty-seven to zero. It was some folks, a couple of folks, not there. Uh, but Brian Slayton, who was accused of providing alcohol to and having sex with a teenage staffer at the Capitol, uh, was expelled. And everything I just said was not disputed by Slayton at all. It hasn't been so far. Um, there was an investigation by the general investigating committee of the house. And I want to underscore for folks that this is not a court proceeding. This is a legislative proceeding. This is the house sort of policing itself, right. And, and taking what can be seen as, um, maybe the most extreme punishment that they can dish out for, for a member of the legislature, which is to kick them out. That's what they can do. Now, prosecutors may follow up on this, I have no idea, because as this was presented to the membership of the House this week, it was pointed out that Slayton may have and probably did break several laws in the state as he was doing this. Um, And there were several very powerful speeches from the members of the General Investigating Committee before the vote was taken to expel Slayton. But I want to highlight one of them. And I got um, quite a few messages from women in the Capitol community about the words of representative Ann Johnson. She's a Democrat from Houston, a former prosecutor in the Harris County DA's office. Uh, And she laid it all out on the Texas house floor, uh, probably in a way that only a former prosecutor could do. And and listen to this, Jeremy, she said that there was a lot to this. And, and, you know, I've got the, the entire speech on my social media on Twitter. It's worth taking a look at it. I think it's about 10 minutes long. I'm going to highlight a couple of moments uh, from it for you. She said that her parents, Johnson's parents, met in the Texas Capitol years ago. Um, And she was pointing that out to say that their experience was really the opposite of what we're talking about with Brian Slayton and the employee in his office.
5: My dad was a state representative from Houston, sitting somewhere about midway over on this right side. And my mom was a reporter for the Dallas Morning News. I have heard the story a thousand times. My dad went to look for the reporter that had written an article about one of his bills. He was going to find them and tell them how wrong they were. He said he took one look at my mom and said, you were right. And they were married happily for 49 years until my dad's death. We are not here because two consenting adults met and fell in love in the Texas house. We are here because a 45-year-old member took advantage of and abused his power over his subordinate teenage staffer.
1: You know, people meet at the Capitol like folks meet at work a lot and maybe strike up a romance, they fall in love. And that's one thing. That, it's one of the things that happens as, as part of the human experience. But she's saying that this is not that at all. This is a, an older guy who is the boss in the office Right, who has a teenage staffer who's nineteen years old, and is taking advantage of her. Um, And at best, as the way Johnson put it, at best, it would be sexual stupidity, and at worst, it would be sexual violence because of the power differential and the way that he's doing it. She talked about how things progressed between Slayton and this nineteen-year-old.
5: It started with slipping an underage girl some drink coins so that she could have her first real capital drink. How many of us would do that with our teenage staff? It's taking photos of her and having her take photos of him, remarking of how she looks nice and remarking on her features. How many of us would do that with our teenage staff? It's sitting with her on the bus to the football game, slipping her more drinks, spending time alone with her together to the point that others start to notice and ask questions. How many of us would do that with our teenage staff?
1: Like I said, there was a lot to this speech, but this is the thing that really stuck with me, Jeremy. She was talking about Slayton's resignation letter. Uh, Slayton had tried to head this off at the pass and not be officially expelled by the Texas house. So he sent a letter to the governor as is the procedure. When a state representative resigns, Uh, he sent a letter to the governor in which he said that, Hey, the governor needs to go ahead and call a new uh, call an an election to have a new state representative, which is, is the process for getting a new state representative. Um, And he said he needed to spend more time with his family and things like that. But Slayton did not show any remorse for what he did not dispute had happened. And, did not even mention the young woman, the victim in the situation.
5: He doesn't even acknowledge the teenage staffer exists. Now that the report has been released and it has become public, she is of no benefit to him. She goes from special to discarded. In my legal work, I have spent years working on behalf of victims of sexual abuse and exploitation. We fear that dark alley the idea of the perpetrator there with a gun or a knife, but it is this type of man that steals innocence.
1: It's my understanding in reading through the report, uh, report Jeremy, that um, the people who ended up turning Slayton in to the investigating committee were some pretty conservative Republicans. Those were the people who would be in his circle, right? I and mean, we're talking about staff staff. And in the report, it mentioned that there were several members who were involved, several uh, House members uh, who went to the committee and reported what they had heard about this. And in some cases, what they maybe had some evidence of. And, you know, those members of the House are not named in the report. I have a pretty good idea who they are, uh, but I'm not going to mention it here. But uh, but the bottom line is that I think that this went beyond politics in this moment. And this is something I heard from capital women uh, who have been either staffers, either they are staffers now or former staffers or are lobbyists, uh, women who work in and around the building. They said that, look, for whoever it was, whichever Republican members of the House turned this guy in, those, and this is just based on the facts in the report, those members would have had to hear it first from their staffers. Because that's the way things played out. It was Slayton and this young woman who was a staffer, and then some other staffers were also involved in uh, sort of a house party where something uh, had happened, where there was uh, drinking, and, uh, and and this is where Slayton had sex with, with this young woman, as alleged in the report. The women at the Capitol said that the Republicans who turned him in must have created an environment in their office in which those staffers felt comfortable coming to their bosses and saying, here's what happened right which is incredibly important and when you're talking about very conservative members of the legislature who some of these women that I talked to are you know either more moderate republicans or even some liberal democrats they told me that those women told me that that made them view those republican lawmakers in another way in a different way something that's that's detached from politics and just something that has to do with just being a good person with just being a good boss because believe me slayton And some of the most conservative members of the legislature are friends, like they're actual buddies. Right. And so those, that would mean those staffers were going to their bosses, knowing that those bosses may be friends with Slayton and it didn't matter. They needed to go tell them the truth. And so when you see something like, you know, like this play out, which as I said, hasn't happened in almost a hundred years. The last time this happened was in 1927. Um, I think it's really meant to be symbolic and send a signal. Um, that this this shouldn't be tolerated, uh, at the Capitol. We know that uh, you know there are always some shenanigans that go on, and worse that that go on. Uh, but the House leadership seemed to be hanging their hat on this attorney general's opinion from 1949, when Price Daniel was the yep. attorney general, which was kind of neat to see that document and and have the attorney general's letterhead from 1949. Um, that opinion said that unless a member is actually expelled by the House, that they are, they are still sort of of uh, a state officer until they're replaced through another election. And I was asked, well, is that really the reason they're doing it? And I said, well, maybe, but I think the bigger reason is to send a signal that this isn't okay. You can't do this. Someone might say, Hey, this is all for show. When there are these speeches given on the floor and they put ladders up in the Texas house to uh, take his name off of the voting board in the house, the the giant voting board where you can see how the, the house members are voting. They, they took his name off so people could watch that uh, ha- happen in real time, whatever their legal justification or justification through the rules, I think it was more about just sending the signal that we're not going to put up with this well
2: and, and one of the things that was really disturbing to me and through the whole thing it's like and I got this from a lot of the the Texas Tech newsletter readers. Mm-hmm. I got so much response on this uh, where, where there were people who were like, "Oh my gosh, this guy with a youth pastor' like he campaigned." On having been a youth, you know, pastor, and had all these testimonials from where he had been a youth pastor in all kinds of different churches around the state, and your your thought goes, "Oh my gosh, it's like, what was this guy's behavior before he came to the House of Representatives, and should we be concerned?" You know, the question's now going to be, "It's like, I hope there are people." in those communities who have been listening to this and are kind of paying attention to see if there are other signs, if this is something that, you know, might be of concern back in, you know, wherever he came from at this point. Uh, You know, I read through some of those testimonials on his campaign website and they were kind of making my stomach turn a little bit. You know, it's like, I'm not sure um, Um, what we know about him now fits with what I would hope a youth pastor would be.
1: Yeah. And I don't know if what was presented to the committee um, as their evidence, which they didn't include in their report, they just said that they had evidence of what had happened uh, and that Slayton did not dispute it. Um, So so I don't know um, if what they had in their possession as a committee, if that would be something that would lead to some conviction in court, that these are very different proceedings Yeah, what happens in a House proceeding. A legislative proceeding versus what happens in a court proceeding. There may be some follow-up from prosecutors. We don't know. We'll, we'll keep an eye uh, on that. One last thing here, Jeremy. I think that the governor needs to really, if he's not doing this already, reassess where he's at on school vouchers after what happened this week in the Texas House. Did you see this where, where House leadership seems to want to maybe acquiesce to the governor and give him some kind of a win? On the school choice, school voucher issue, there was a uh, sort of a panic among some of the public education supporters in Texas as they saw that the public education committee was maybe going to vote on this hastily drafted new version of a school voucher uh, proposal. And the move was made on the Texas House floor by the chairman of that committee to go ahead and meet and vote on that piece of legislation. And it didn't go the way that the chairman wanted it to go. And in fact, the house did something I have never seen them do. I don't, I don't think I've ever seen this. And um, I was told that it's something that has happened from time to time, but it's not normal. It's not the usual. Well, usually what just happens, Jeremy, as you know, this is a little down in the weeds, but the committees sometimes, especially toward the end of session, will ask for permission from the entire house to be able to meet so that they can vote on bills and send them to the full house But the committees can't meet while the House is in session unless the House grants permission. And usually that just happens without objection. They don't have a vote on it. They just say, can the committee meet and nobody has any issue with it? And they just do it. In this instance, there was an issue. The chairman, Brad Buckley, wanted to go ahead and meet and move quick on this new voucher bill. And he was interrupted.
4: Mr. Uh, Mr. Speaker, I move the House grant permission for the Committee on
0: Public Education to meet while the House is in session today at 9.15 p.m. in Room E2036 to consider pending, referred, and committee business. Mr. Speaker. Mr. Bales, for what purpose? Does the gentleman yield? the gentleman yield for questions?
4: Yeah, I I yield.
0: Chairman Buckley, I know we we gave a long speech about how we handle bills, about decorum in the body on the Herrera Amendment and such. Mm -hmm. And you plainly stated that when we have bills, especially those that are very substantial, that it's important that we give those thoughtful consideration, that we have proper time for deliberation, full transparency to the body. Is your intention to bring a bill and a sizable uh, committee substitute somewhere to the tune of 80 pages?
1: Uh, We're going to take up pending business in the committee um, if the House grants permission. So he didn't even directly answer him about which bill was going to come up in the committee. Uh, That was Ernest Bales, who's a state rep from San Jacinto County, north of Houston. Um, And Bales, I have to tell you, Jeremy, is somebody who doesn't usually object to almost anything on the microphone. He's not a guy who gets real argumentative in the House. In fact, as he was speaking against uh, Chairman Buckley, I know that some journalists had to look up who he was. He's not a high-profile, prof- high I will just say, he's not a grandstander. He's not a guy who goes to the front microphone all the time to give a speech that then ends up on Twitter. He's not that guy, right? Um, but Ernest Bales formally objected to the committee even
0: being able to meet and then made his argument for why. Members of this body, if we stand for anything, is for doing what is Right. We give bills the opportunity to be heard in committee. We give the public an opportunity to give their input. We're able to have that conversation. We're able to know what their feelings are and what their thoughts are. There was extensive hearings that the Education Committee heard to handle bills such as ESAs, Education 7's account, also known as vouchers. The committee, the committee chose not to give any of those bills a vote, because there were problems with those bills. The numbers quite simply didn't add up. So we have a motion now to force this body to accept, this is the 80 pages, this is the 80 pages, and I plainly ask, is, is it the chairman's intention to force these 80 pages, which are unvetted, they are unheard in committee, this is not the right way to do this, and we are better than this in this committee. Our kids matter in the state of Texas, and they are better than backroom, shady dealings, which is what this is right here.
1: He started to hear some of the members of the House either boo him or cheer him for what he was saying. It was a divisive moment. Uh, and the House, and I, I, was, I had no idea how this was going to go, Jeremy. The House voted with bails. 76 To sixty-five, which is, you know, a contested vote, right? I mean, it's seventy-six to sixty-five to not allow the committee to meet. Now, when this happened with some regularity years ago, when committees were not allowed to meet um, in this fashion, uh, it was under Speaker Tom Craddock, who was very divisive and said to be dictatorial, and eventually was run out of office as speaker. He's still a state representative, but but eventually. They got rid of Craddock in favor of Joe Strauss, and I was told by some legislative veterans that the reason that sometimes the committees would not be allowed to meet by the full house when Craddock was there was because the members started to feel like they were having things rammed down their throats that they didn't want, right? And so I don't know what that means for Speaker Phelan's leadership. I have some thoughts on that that I shared at quorumreport.com. I think it's an early warning sign for the Speaker. I think he should be careful about this. Watch it closely. Um, but let me tell you what it means for the broader question about vouchers. Usually, and you've covered a lot, a lot of issues like this, Jeremy, usually it will be said that there are the votes for whatever this thing is on the floor. If it could just get out of committee, right? That happens all the time The, the you know, this was the same argument under the ba- about the bathroom bill back in 2017. Republican members of the house were saying there's enough votes on the house floor to pass it. If we could just get it out of the state affairs committee where the chairman won't hold a vote on the bathroom bill. This discussion happens all the time, but on this, based on the numbers I just told you, it's the opposite. Right now, it may be that there are the votes to get this out of the committee, but there are not the votes for it on the floor, right? We have now seen a near super majority of opposition to it in that amendment on the budget for, for you know, prohibiting it's tax dollars from going to school vouchers. And now you have a majority of the house, 76 members saying they don't even want a committee to meet, to move on a voucher bill. Now they're still going to hear that bill coming up on Monday. Cause they have to, they have to do it a different way. Now they can't just do it instantly. They have to wait for five days. But I think the opposition to this still isn't moving no matter what the proposal is.
2: Yeah. It's interesting. We're down to like the last two full weeks of the session. It's like, you know, I I said it before, it's like, you know, if Abbott has a magic rabbit in the hat he can pull out right about now, this would be the time to do it. And and newsflash, it wasn't George Foreman, if you listen to last (laughs) week's show. It's like he was clearly not the the magic uh, rabbit in this one. So I'm not sure what he does. And notice that uh, Greg Abbott had no rallies this week on school choice. Uh, This was the first week he's been – you know, completely done with the issue that I've seen. I can't remember the last time he did not bring it up. Uh, So that might be kind of a signal that, okay, they gave it a college try. (laughs) They did everything they could. They got Mattress Mag. They got, you know, former heavyweight champions. They traveled to Amarillo and back, you know, they've done everything they possibly can. And just like you laid out, they don't have the votes to have a committee meet to talk about it. Right? (laughs) Yeah.
1: I mean, it's, it is rough sledding for this thing, and as uh, a couple of uh, Capitol observers said to me after that after that vote on not letting the committee meet again, it said it doesn't matter how many special sessions you have, you're not going to get to a majority of the House for a school voucher proposal of almost any kind, unless maybe the governor would be willing to settle for something that is just maybe a small expansion of the school vouchers for special needs kids, which we already have a version of that, right? But that's not at all what he has talked about for the last year, trying to push this thing. Well, I think Jeremy, go ahead.
2: Well, I just wanted to say, it's like, and so this is the thing, like, he's got so much more work to do into the rural areas. And we've talked about it before on the show. It's like, while Iowa was able to pull it out, remember, Iowa is like nothing compared to the side of of Texas. Mm -hmm. We have so many more rural districts and so many more independent school districts, so many more superintendents, so many more school board members. You really have to do a lot more. You can't just mimic what Kim Reynolds in Iowa just did to pull it off. It's Mm -hmm. like, he's got to put some significant significant time it can't be just a whistle stop through amarillo and say hey i'll protect your schools and then head out of town it's like people are legitimately concerned and questioning how would this work and they mm-hmm. haven't been able to answer that you know not clearly you even heard it on the radio shows when patrick and abbott would be on there it's like they would they couldn't give you details and so like address it for those folks so, those folks might be you know willing to listen to you if you could explain to them how would mm-hmm. this work how are you gonna do this where it doesn't hurt my school? You know, it's like and that they just haven't finished the deal on. If they want to try to get this issue rolling, at some point they're gonna have to deal with that being the predominant problem. Rural Texas is just still afraid of what this will mean.
1: Go campaign on it if you want to pass it and really go campaign on it. Not just doing some whistle stops during the legislative session. Somebody said um, that it wasn't really even a ten a week roadshow it was just one day for each of the 10 weeks that he was doing a road show in different places. And that's a really interesting point, Jeremy, that he's again, pivoting to the border, the border, the border. Let's get tough on. Did I mention the border? Um, all right. That's enough show for this week. Thank y'all so much um, for everybody who's given money to the leukemia lymphoma society in central Texas, including Jeremy. Now, what did we say? Uh, the rule was for listeners, if you love, me, if you love Braddock, you give at least 20. And if you love to hate me, it goes up a little bit. You need to give at least 25. And so I'm sitting there right after the show last week and a, and a donation for $25 rolls in and guess who it was from? Jeremy Wallace. <laughs> I said, okay. I see what this guy is doing, but you can do, you can do what Jeremy did. Give that 25 baby. Anything you can give is great. $10, $25, whatever. We're up to about uh 25,000 now. Uh, including the commitments uh, that we've gotten so far. Uh, So I appreciate it. Uh, You can find the link to donate uh, at my website, scottbraddock.com. It's real easy. It's right at the top there, scottbraddock.com, whatever you can give. uh, You're helping fight blood cancers uh, here in Central Texas. Subscribe at quorumreport.com, houstonchronicle.com, and we will see you next time.